Welcome to La Fleur Politique with Dr. Michael de Percy. Please visit www.politicalscience.com.au to explore Dr. de Percy's blog, publications, show notes, and more. Professor Michael de Percy, we meet again after seven episodes of this professional orientation journey. We've been through a lot, and there's been a lot of considerations in play, but we're full circle. And we're back within the realms of UC, the faculty of BGL and the School of Politics, Economics and Society and feet firmly on the ground. We've got some pragmatics to consider. The first is that after professional orientation, there's going to be a variety of pathways for our undergraduate colleagues to explore their uh, quote unquote professional development. So they can do internships, they can do overseas, well, COVID permitting <laughs> overseas, um, learning experiences at different universities, and eventually they'll end up in your class called professional evidence. Um, now, we know that in professional evidence, students are going to have to present, well, evidence of their professionalism, so to speak. I mean, I've not, I've not sat your class or audited, so I don't know what happens in there. Can you tell us more about what this is and what our students have to expect? Yeah, absolutely. Look, look. I guess it's not so much that they have to present uh, something. I, I've moved away from this idea. Um, let's talk about e-portfolios a bit later. But basically, <laughs> it's like it's like an online CV or resume, um, and it's something that students need to start doing in professional orientation, which we've been encouraging them to do. But they'll really need to have it in professional um, evidence because they basically have to. Um, not so much present. The thing is, right, people are going to have different experiences at different stages in life and at different levels of their career and so on. So, you know, you can't just basically say that, oh, you know, the older person with more experience in a professional setting has a better CV than, you know, the the new starter who's had a few casual positions and has just finished university. I mean, that's not fair, right? So what I try and focus on is the actual purpose of having this sort of external presentation or record of their work, which forms part of the narrative. And, and I guess, again, we're talking about this journey over a six-month period. We're now talking about the journey over the three-year period of the undergraduate degree. And mm. so um, what, what I'm really sort of focused on is actually getting students to go out and interview professional people and ask them what they did and how they did it and how it can you know how they can use that or uh, you, you know what principles they can learn that these other people have used in developing their uh, their online presence uh, and and keeping that sort of record of um, you know their achievements and their and their outcomes and so on and we, we were talking about this uh, offline just before and, and I guess. Um, uh, for me, that's something that's that's actually it's really important on a number of levels. One, it's great for personal marketing of your outputs and outcomes and what you've achieved and and you know your approach to doing that. But the other thing is really important is that um, you have to think back and, and and again, professional orientation, if most students, you know, assuming a younger student coming into the university, most students who produce their first resume would have, you know, I, I remember mine trying, you know, how do you fill the page? <laughs> you know, you've done your personal <laughs> details and then you're going like, what experience have you had? I worked at Coles New World, you know, which is like 
you know, Woolies or Coles today or whatever, you know, as a trolley boy, you know. <laughs> they don't yeah. even have those now. They're, they're outsourced, you know. But, but the point is that you don't have a lot. And you, I, I guess when you start to develop it over time, you have to be thinking about, well, what actually counts? And the sorts of things that count are obviously qualifications, obviously experience, but also things like, well, you know, do you contribute to society? What sort of philanthropic work do you do? Have you done volunteering? Have you done these um, uh, cadetships and internships and, and, and so on and so forth? Uh, and, and so I suppose what I'm sort of hoping for students by the time they get to professional evidence is that they can actually produce a curriculum vitae or a resume that is significantly more than the one page that they may have had, you know, at the beginning of their degree. Mm -hmm. I'm, it's given me a lot to think about, a lot to think about. And the one thing that stands out for me, like most, is this understanding of why we're doing this. So like students in professional evidence will be encouraged to go and interview people. And am I, you know, as in people they consider to be successful in, in one regard or another, it doesn't have to be necessarily, you know, uh, corporate suit, um, nine to five, uh, uh, you know, Jill or something like that. It could be uh, a, a nan, it could be, uh, you know, a, a, any type of person that, you know, we, we, we look up to. Um, but I'm also thinking like, why do we do these CVs? Why do we collect this evidence? And obviously we're all going to have our own answers to those questions. The thing that concerns me is there seems to be a trope at play here where a lot of folks have it in their heads that university is a discrete period of time where you put together all of these bits and bobs and then you get the CV with your experiences and your humanitarian contributions and the fact that you've written, you know, llamas in Argentina and all that kind of stuff as an exchange student. <laughs> and then suddenly after graduation, you go and you start submitting that piece of paper cold to, to different graduate, uh, you know, programs and to different uh, intakes and to different advertisements for folks that are looking for people with skills that match yours. What bothers me about that is that it's a uh, very servile. Uh, B, it seems to miss the point completely about this undergraduate journey. So one model that's very different to that that I'm familiar with is, uh, and it's one that you had mentioned in the first episode uh, as regards liberal arts. So. In uh, North America in particular, it's quite popular there. You can see more of this happening in Europe. But someone who's starting their, uh, their undergraduate, that that discrete period of time tends to only be the first year. Now, after that, you're you know, given all of these uh, introductions, you're, you're introduced personally, socially to a lot of people who, you know, are interested in similar things as you. And that's not necessarily just within the university. That's within uh, government, that's within business. And it's these really well-connected um, faculties in particular who enable these relationships. So then students you know, can do two things at the same time. One is have their studies, you know, uh, live this wonderful life of the mind, accumulate all of these, uh, these interests, but 
talk about it socially at things like, you know, dinners and events with people who could be their future employers or talk about these directions and desires with their classmates because you don't know who's going to be starting a business or a restaurant. You might be their partner, you know. Um, I think a huge thing uh, that we're missing, particularly in the marketized Australian university system, is that social fabric. I really don't see it happening here. And I think that that's a worry. It, it tends to produce that weird, at least as far as my impression goes, it tends to produce that commodified uh, paper mill uh, hoop jumping feeling of, of a university degree, that the piece of paper is just something that you need to go and get the job that you, you require because you're not going to be able to live on your own and society's going to hate you. Every, everything you've said is completely valid. And I would encourage all of my students. I mean, I always say to my students, right, we're not here to teach you what to think. We're to, here to teach you how to think. And your thoughts are your own. And it's the only thing you can control are your, <laughs> are your behaviors. You know, you, everything else happens to you, but you can control how you react to it. And you can, uh, the Stoics talk about managing your, the impressions, which are the, the way that you view the external events. And let's look at some really simple sort of adages, like it's not what you know, it's who you know. There's an element of truth to that. But the point of professional orientation was to get people oriented toward thinking about networking. Now, studies, again, don't ask me for a reference right now, but, you know, the, the studies show that CEOs <laughs> spend, like, more than 80% of their work time networking, and they're hired based on their ability to draw on those networks. Um, so these are key skills, you know, in society, and we can, you know, jump up and down about how good or bad that whole idea is, the simple fact is that having the ability to call on networks is a key element of leadership power. Um, and if you do political leadership, we'll talk about these, these things. Um, but, but, uh, <laughs> but I guess right at the beginning, what we're talking about was what do you want? Like as an individual, you know, what makes you burn and how do you achieve that? How do you orientate yourself toward that particular thing? You know, and, and look for me, um, I've found that you either have time or you have money. You can't have both. <laughs> you have to compromise. It's satisficing to use the, you know, the, the uh, uh, Herbert Simon sort of term. Um, but, but to satisfy is to think about, well, what's more important? And you can have lots of money, but if all you're doing is meeting after meeting after meeting. I mean, I say to managers at the university all the time, you know, being quite <laughs> devilish, I asked them, how many meetings have you achieved today? You know, and, <laughs> and because to me, it's not an achievement. Like going to a meeting is not an achievement. An achievement for me is a publication or a successful lecture or when a student stops me in Woolworths, you know, and says to his wife, hey, come and meet this guy. That's the guy I told you about who helped me get through uni. You know, they're the sort of moments that you live for. Mm. And, you know, for me, they're really important. Mm. But the point is, for me, for someone else, maybe they're not so important. And the thing is, we're all individual. Mm -hmm. We're all unique. And, you know, we, we all have different needs, wants, desires, you know, to use the economic terms or whatever. But, but the point that I'm getting at is that I think we need to um, be very conscious of what is it that we want 
being conscious that there is also or there are also institutions that structure our behaviour, reward and punish certain behaviours, and yet these are necessary for an orderly society. So we, we sort of, it's kind of like that idea of, you know, we're free to do whatever we like as long as it doesn't hurt someone else or hurt ourselves. And the state's role, again, in a liberal democracy, you see, here's my ideology, I can't escape it, right? There's my bias. But my point is that <laughs> what we're sort of focused on is getting students to think for themselves and think about what's important for them, what makes them burn, how can they contribute to society while also looking after themselves? You know, how do they maintain those boundaries between the individual, between the society and the polis and so on? And how do they turn that into a successful career where they're actually happy? And the thing is, it may not be the first or second or third or fourth or even fifth career, and now it could even be the tenth career, you know. But having the skills to be able to navigate all of these different changes, I think for me, is the key. And what I'm hoping for is that students who have actually taken responsibility for their own learning because it's about them, it's not about others. It's not about, you know, like I said to you, we're not measuring, you know, oh, you have more experience, therefore you get a better mark for your CV. We're actually thinking about, well, why is your CV structured this way? How does it relate to your profession or your discipline or, you know, to your experience? What is that story? What is your story? What is your narrative? Professional evidence is the conclusion of that narrative at that stage, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And I, you know, I'm hearing um, quite a lot about self-determination. That seems to be a, you know, a good word to capture what you've been saying, again, at least to me anyway, that what we're trying to cultivate and encourage is this sense of uh, our undergraduate students developing, you know, uh, I guess you could call it an elbow <laughs> to um, create a bit of space between themselves and structures like the university or the social expectation of, um, you know, entering some kind of money-making uh, activity once you're done with your university studies. And, you know, with, obviously there's lots of problems with that. You can still be, and, and so many of our students are already making money. And uh, I think probably more than, you know, you and I put together for some people while they're doing their studies. I don't know how they have this energy to, to do it. Um, but, you know, so that's one thing. And the other is quite a few people uh, don't have money making as an interest whatsoever. And, um, you know, they have a certain privilege based on their positionality that when they're out of university, they can go to, let's say, a piece of land that their family owns in Tasmania and, um, you know, live there with, with a very, very small uh, requirement, financially speaking, to, to meet. So you might only need to make uh, a few hundred dollars, you know, um, uh, a month or, or every two weeks to meet your, your own personal living needs. So everything is self-determination here. And a big thing for us so far in this podcast has been to try to explore what it means to not, you know, fall prey to this um, type of path determination, which is, you know, studies, a job, typically some kind of heteronormative marriage. No, I, uh, no absolutely. You know, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> one vacation a year, uh, massive mortgage, you know, and suddenly, 
you're, you're 65 years old and you wonder why you're uh, part of my language, but fucking miserable. Um, no, so, no, but absolutely. And yeah. I, I think, but I think people need to realize that this is the case. I mean, you, you know, um, to have lived in a heteronormal, <laughs> for, you know, for want of a better word, um, relationship for 70 years, if you think that's awesome, that's awesome. If you think it sucks, then that sucks. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's mm. kind of like, to me, it has to be about choices. It ought to yes. be about what you're doing. You're doing it for you because inevitably, if we end up doing things for others, we really hate it. And, you know, I've seen examples with students who, you know, um, they've been doing an accounting degree and they actually suck at accounting. You know, accounting is not for them. And sometimes passing accounting 101 sorry, failing accounting 101 three times is a good indicator that you're not suited for accounting, you know, and you can just keep banging at that forever and your hex debt will just build up <laughs> to no avail. Whereas it might be the case that you ought to be a musician or something else, you know, because that's what makes you burn, I guess. And really for me, professional orientation is about that. And it's really interesting that whenever I've been involved in in the teaching and, and you and I have done this as well is that um, I've had students come to me afterwards and say I've discovered that I don't want to study politics I'm sorry mm. and I'm like well I'm not mm -hmm. sorry I'm glad my whole point was for you to think for yourself and here you are doing it you're making choices and I had another yes. student say that you know what I'm really interested in architecture and politics is not for me only six months later to come back and say um it looks like politics is for me after all. <laughs> you know, I made a choice; it was wrong, and I'm re I've chosen differently. You know, and and but yeah. that's thinking for yourself. And and I guess, you know, I'm not interested in this idea of you know cookie cutter careers and so on because they inevitably yeah. lead to dissatisfaction. Um, you know, obviously, it's about satisfying. We have to have enough to live in the way that we hope we can live. Um, but we also have to have some sort of fulfillment from what we do. And, uh, and that's the thing for me. Like, there's no other career for me. I've tried five careers, accounting, consulting, um, the military, um, you know, uh, sales, uh, logistics, all the rest of it. And uh, I just wake up in the morning and, you know, that's, that for me is the test. I've not had in my what are we now, 20 odd years as an academic, I've never woken up going like, I hate my job. Mm -hmm. I, I, I never think of that. I wake up going, maybe I should try this. Maybe I should do this differently. Or, you know, I need to focus on this or, or that. Whereas I remember as a, as a young man, 19 years of age, waking up going, oh my God, if I have to go to this job for another day, I, it's over. <laughs> I cannot, <laughs> I cannot live. And I thought, hang on, I'm 19. Potentially I could be here for another 50, 60 or more years. I've got to, I've got to find something better than this. And, and better wasn't mm. about money. It was about how I felt about my contribution and my purpose. Yeah. And I guess the yeah, thing that's is, a huge thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, we talk about that too, you know, we, we, um, d depending on the assignments, but often we'll look at it like a purpose statement is what is my purpose and how do I know? And, and these are really interesting questions because sometimes you never answer them. And, and I think all of the classic philosophers, the Stoics in particular, saw individuals as a work in progress and it was about striving for the ideal and accepting that you could never achieve it. But the striving 
was the most important part. And, you know, that sort of mirrors mm. that modern day saying life is a journey, not a destination, because the destination, uh, I'm sorry, I'm drawing, <laughs> drawing on Albert Camus here, but the destination is that we all die, <laughs> you know, which is probably not, <laughs> not very uplifting. Um, but the simple fact oh, is, but it's, yeah. I mean, it's but, where we're all heading. Absolutely. But Camus said also that um, everything can be reduced to the fear of death. And when we, when we realize that it's inevitable, there's no need to be afraid. And we should actually, you know, work toward what we want in this one life that we have. And, you know, for me, that's a really powerful philosophy that I think in many ways drives that idea of professional orientation through to professional evidence. You know, who am I? Mm -hmm. What do I want? Uh, what do I want to contribute? Or how can I best use my skills to contribute? And how do I collect the evidence of that to demonstrate that I do that, you know, through my, through my existence? And I guess that's the combination I, of professional evidence yeah. is this is me and this is what I've done. And the thing is too, if we let others or if we wait for others to recognise our hard work, this is the greatest failing of capitalism. You know, the, the, the capitalist model suggests that if we work hard, we'll all be rich. And the simple fact is that we all know people who have worked hard their entire lives and they died really poor. <laughs> you know, I, I guess that's inappropriate mm. laughter, but it should, be, um, it should be a sort of warning to suggest that um, working hard is not enough. There has to be more, mm -hmm. you know, we, we have to demonstrate what we do to others and we can, you know, wax yeah. lyrical about whether that's good or bad. But I think again, to use your term in the, in our first discussion, the realist point of view is that this is how it is and you can fight it as much as you like, um, or you can embrace it and make it your own. There's a lot in there. Uh, I've been taking notes furiously. And uh, the one thing I would want to add from, from my own uh, paradigm, uh, anyhow, is that, you know, there, there is also the, the approach, which is in, in some ways alien um, to a European um, outlook. And it's, it tends to come more from Sri Lanka and, and Southern India and Nepal and such, but it's that the sense of having a purpose is actually um, a form of lunacy <laughs> that um, it's, it's fine simply to just be alive and to, you know, just, just be, you know, and, and in terms of, there's also a lot of uh, politics involved with the language of, you know, contributing and being a contributor uh, to society. Cause there's a lot of stuff in there that it, with every action, as you know, there are implications. Uh, and yeah, if we're not particularly cognizant of the, the, the sorts of behaviors that we, we, we demonstrate to the world. So if, if we don't think of them deconstructively and look for the poisons and the ills and the hurts that might come out of that, uh, you know, our behaviors and such could actually be hurting others or, or perpetuating systems of oppression. Um, so there's, you know, that, that's kind of a, a just a little disclaimer from my <laughs> uh, my side. But, you know, I think the point for us both is that there's a lot of scope here to... Uh, actually, let me rephrase. The point here is for us to say, this is all up to you, how you want to determine yourself. And you've got to be very, very weary 
all of the different pressures and dynamics, expectations, uh, and, and worldviews, even cosmologies that are placed upon you, things that you might not even be aware of. And, and you'll come to realize these things more as you uh, study you know, in your chosen degree within our school, for instance, or as, as Michael encouraged through your own you know, uh, uh, self-education through reading. But with all of that in place, I wonder what's a really good way, Michael, do you, do you think that students can leverage their time, their studies that you see in particular, to make the most gains in terms of their self-determination? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think I think key is um, it's something that the Stoics would say you can't control, <laughs> but your reputation is key. And the students who I've seen who are most successful are those who are well-known to uh, staff at all levels in the university through their contribution, which is usually through volunteering or taking the lead on different projects or performing well. Uh, as an ambassador for the university on internships and and so on, um, you know, I get. I guess when I think about my own career, the amount of times where I've worked with really closely with people have really got to know me, and have recognised my integrity, you know, in different aspects and my work ethic and these sorts of things, uh, they've stood by me time and time and time again through adversity and joy and all these other things. <laughs> and really that's through putting yourself out there by actually having a purpose and trying to achieve these, you know, these particular purposes. And look, the thing is, if you're interested in different religious aspects, I mean, I, I love theology. It's a passion of mine. Um, I, I don't disagree with you that there are certain... Um, you know, ideological and cosmological <laughs> prescriptions about the things that we're talking about. But at the same time, I keep coming back again and again through my travel and education and everything to a sort of fundamental belief in the liberal arts education being the most important type of education. And if I'm wrong, okay, I can live with that. <laughs> but, you know, if, if you've got nothing and no idea and you're just disagreeing because you've, you know, it's all based on your own ego with no experience, then you're in real trouble, you know. And I really hope that my students can are away from that sort of uh, arrogant, um, uneducated, unenlightened uh, approach to things. Um, and, and I'm not suggesting that, you know, we can't have an opinion or, or, or whatever it is, but I, I'm really hoping that our students will know themselves and what they want. They will know where their ideas I mean, this is part of leadership training, really. It's understanding your own values, assumptions, beliefs, and expectations, knowing why you have them, where they come from. And I say to my students mm. in politics, too, that, you know, you may start out as a conservative, challenge that at every potential angle in your studies and come back to being a conservative, but at least you'll know your enemies <laughs> and the way that they think. Whereas if you're a conservative because your parents were and you just... I mean, uh, James Clawson, a professor of leadership in, in uh, the US, he basically says that you either choose to be a vessel that transmits genes from one generation to the next, or you choose to contribute um, and, and enhance the value of what you're passing on to the next generation. And I think, mm. you know, again, we can argue this is a growth mindset <laughs> that's not realistic or, you know, that, that it's that sort of progress thesis which, you know, can be challenged and so on. 
but but I look at, at this point in time uh, and and in this particular era uh, and in the competitiveness and everything else, you still have to sleep at night. And you know, if you wake up in the morning, and you love what you're doing, and you can sleep peacefully at night, then I, I dare say that's a really good measure uh, for living the good life. And mm. I don't know that you can do that by accident. Mm-hmm. Although sometimes, well, serendipity. You know, it's a it's a thing, and it's done so many of us uh, a great turn in life. Just simple luck. You know, you think everything's done when a door slams in your face, but as it said, well, you know, the uh, the fire escape opens, and uh, there you can jump on a pelican and fly to your destiny. Um, okay, no one's ever said that, but let's just move, <laughs> move along. To, no, abs- uh... <laughs> absolutely, but but I guess I guess the point is, and the point of why do we collect the evidence in professional evidence? It's because if you don't talk about yourself, no one else is going to. You know, people are not sitting around watching you and setting up your next promotion. You have to take responsibility for that. And if you want to test that, think about the people that you know and think about how much time you spend thinking about their welfare. You know, unless they're in your direct care, (laughs) you don't really think about other people and their career development, you know. I mean, some of us will be natural mentors and we'll take on these roles or whatever. But at the same time, we're still inherently focused on ourselves. And the thing is, if we're not focused on ourselves, then who else is responsible for us? Again, this is a very liberal sort of view of the world. But I know that and I'm happy with and comfortable with that. And if you're, you know, have a different worldview and you're happy and comfortable with that, then then live it out, you know, make it happen. I mean, that's part of our sort of survival of the species through diversity. It's very important. Yes. I'm, I'm definitely jumping up and down in a, in a non-individualistic uh, liberal <laughs> approach to, to living, but um, that's perhaps for another uh, forum, if not podcast. Um, we're, we're approaching on time. So let me just ask one more thing. E-portfolios, um, they, they seem to be a really big thing in not just in academia, but for things like artists, you know, musicians through to fine arts and all that, they, they're using them. Now, classically, these used to just be, well, portfolios. You print them and they've got, you know, a binding and pages and all that. Now they've become digitalized. So, you know, you use one with politicalscience.com.au. Uh, you know, I've got my own and, and we call them websites, right? And then we've got other means for presenting ourselves uh, to different audiences, you know, government and, and business and uh, what would be called the general public or to, you know, uh, those people within the university who are called uh, our direct uh, managers. Now, what is this e-portfolio thing um, beyond, you know, what I've just mentioned? And what are the options? You know, you're, you're, I remember you were teaching a variety of these uh, options and opportunities to students in recent years. And we used to be pigeonholed into this thing called Mahara. So we can still use it if you want to. I mean, uh, if I had a map, I would point, you know, danger and dragons be there and <laughs> uh, avoid at all costs. But some people love the Mahara and, and, and go for it. But what are the other options? And why, why should we be doing this e-portfolio thing? Look, it, it's a really interesting blend between competency-based training and um, criteria-based assessment. 
So competency-based training is the type of thing you'll do in a trade or a traineeship or a TAFE. Uh, Criteria-based assessment is what we do at university. So you're actually graded as opposed to competent or not yet competent. And traditionally, portfolios were used as a way for tradespeople to collect evidence of their capabilities or their competence and present those for assessment to their you know, their masters or, 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 or whatever. Um, whereas criteria-based assessment is very much about you know ranking you against a set of criteria which establishes the standard. The, the unfortunate thing with Mahara is that it's awesome at uh, assessing competence and collecting that sort of uh, information. It's used very effectively at the um, technical and advanced education level, um, whereas for criteria-based assessment, it's not so good. And what I do, instead of suggesting that students have a particular approach to a website or LinkedIn or whatever it is they use to present their work in an e-portfolio, I encourage them to study the industry that they intend to enter, to go and interview people in that industry and ask them what they do and what principles they use to develop that portfolio. But again, this is the um, way that you present evidence to the world of your capabilities. Um, the way that you do that will depend on the culture of the particular uh, career and mm -hmm. industry and so on. But having said that, you also have to have the courage to be different. When I first started blogging in the early 2000s, I was told that academics do not blog. Now these days, and in the last yeah. five years, they've been having training courses of how to blog as an academic. Yeah, so, it's huge. <laughs> you know, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, But that's part of leadership. The easiest way to be an effective leader is be the first. People can't follow someone if they're not the first. <laughs> you know, so sometimes you just have to, you know, make a judgment call. Uh, but again, get the information, do the research, talk to people, ask them what they do, ask for their lessons and their principles. Um, at the moment, there are some people who refuse to have a LinkedIn profile. And if that's the case, then that's fine. But if your career is not happening because nobody knows who you are or what you do, then maybe you need to have a have a look at yourself and reconsider, you know, reflect on that. But there are still other people who don't need, a bit like Diogenes, <laughs> you have to go back to Diogenes. He didn't need that. He had a reputation that was far and wide, not through his own making, um, but through the words of others. So, it, it, and, and again, there are certain artists um, you know, I think of the catcher in the rye, <laughs> you know, that being a recluse can actually help your marketing. So, <laughs> you know, it, it really, it really depends. But again, it's about gaining new knowledge through being inquisitive and curious. And knowing who research, you are. Knowing who you are. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's all those things that we're trying to sort of top and tail the degree with through professional orientation and professional evidence. And look, in my view, it's one of the most important things and I only wish I had the chance to do it, when, you know, back in the day. Mm. A lot of considerations, Professor Michael de Percy. Thank you very much for your time. This brings our podcast to a close. And uh, thank you for being our bookend. <laughs> thank you, Jean-Paul. All the best. Thank you, and you too. You've been listening to Le Flaneur Politique with Dr. Michael de Percy. Explore Dr. De Percy's website at www.politicalscience.com.au. The Flinner Politique podcast is available on Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. IWSN 2652 8851.